0: listener production. I say a storm happens to everybody. The difference is when the storm happens, who gets up fastest? Who gets up strongest? Who gets up and takes the learning so when the next storm comes through, you can handle it better? And I think that is the other half is the individual's ability to recover and get back up and how we help people with those skills.
1: I'm Margie Hartley, Executive Coach to Senior Leaders Around the Globe, and this is Fast Track. There are a vast and complex array of leaders in the world, and without question, a universal characteristic of a great leader is one that develops others. It's hard to do and it's often not done well, but when the concept of developing others is applied properly, it not only makes for a high-performing workplace, but a dynamic and engaged one as well. Think about the best leader you ever had. I would guarantee they developed you in a way that you can still remember, whether it was giving you opportunities or recognising your strengths, or giving you feedback on your development areas in a way that made sense and motivated you. So in speaking about this topic, I really wanted to speak to someone who had a passion for developing others and someone who had a global reputation as a CEO who truly develops the people who work with and for her. So in this episode, I've invited Pip Marlowe, the CEO of Salesforce, ANZ and ASEAN, and former Managing Director of Microsoft Australia, Pip has a reputation as a passionate and empowering leader. Pip, thank you so much for joining me on Fast Track.
0: First, thank you so much for inviting me to be here today. It's so great to see you again.
1: Pip, what and when was a catalyst or realisation that developing those you worked with was essential for success?
0: It's a great question. And I did start thinking about the people I've worked with and the great leaders. Actually, it went beyond that. I um, had an amazing father. And I'm one of five kids. And growing up as one of five kids, you are learning to negotiate, you're working as a team, you're having disagreements. And uh, my dad was just this incredible dad, but he also had an incredible career working for a university in New Zealand, not as an academic, but on the administrative side. And he would often come home and tell stories about what went on at work that day and the challenges they were facing. And I noticed every time he would tell these stories, he would be talking about other people he had a great job. But the whole story and the pride he took in telling me what people on his team did, I thought that that was just an amazing thing. I thought, oh, I hope when I go to work, somebody goes home and tells their family about something I did that day because it was so cool. And so I just saw the joy that that element of leading and, and working with others brought my dad. And he was also pretty successful at negotiating five children, which you can imagine was not easy. So that always made me interested in working as part of a team. And, and I have said this to you before, I get such joy out of working in a team to achieve something that nobody thought was possible or was really hard. And you know that you can only do it through working as part of a team. So I think the second part of the answer to the question, and when was the corporate or the commercial moment, it was working with an old leader of mine. And we were talking about how we build better development programs for people. And uh, he said to me a line that I will never, ever forget. He said, there's only one thing you need to do to um, make people believe that you care about them and their development and their career. Only one thing. And I was like, okay, what's this? Because it's got to be priceless. He goes, just care. Because no amount of programs that people are checking the box on or doing will be great or as great as they can be if you really don't care about it. So not everybody needs to be a people leader or a manager or do that. But if you go down that path, you should deeply care about other people and and their career and helping them achieve their best.
1: That's brilliant. And it's simple too to remember. (laughs) I like that. I like
0: things I can remember as well, I have to say.
1: Is that how you would define it then, caring?
0: Yeah, authentic, genuinely caring. Now, caring can show up in different ways, can't it? Because if I care about one person on my team, their needs are different to somebody else on my team. So I think part of that first step of caring is really deep, active listening, truly understanding where that other person is in their career, with their aspirations, in the role that you can play in helping them achieve those. But it doesn't start with you talking. It starts, I think, with you listening.
1: Mm, Another great reminder for everybody. So your personal philosophy around developing others, I'm hearing caring, listening, the CEO of an enormous organisation. You are part of multiple teams across the world. How do you care and listen to everybody at such scale?
0: Yeah, look, I mean, there's thousands of employees across Australia and New Zealand and ASEAN. You're not in a one-on-one relationship, candidly, with all of them. So I think the role that I get to take is how do you create a fabric, a culture, that actually instils that more broadly across the organisation because you have to think about scale, I think, when you you move through your career and running a larger team. So to me it's things like how do we as a leadership team prioritise talking about talent, growing and developing talent in our organisation so that it's just not me by myself, you know, thinking about how we grow and and help our talent. So like their career and their aspirations, you've got an entire team around you. I think it doesn't start from your HR department, it starts from your business. So your HR team is there to help you with that. But I think, you know, people and um, your people strategy should be a business strategy, not an HR strategy. It's generally the number one asset we have in our company is our people. So if we're not developing it and, and doing that at scale, I think that's challenging. So I think ensuring as a leader and as part of a leadership team, we prioritize this. And I think it'd be easy sometimes just to you know, put that at the end of the agenda or, or not deal with it or you know, focus and invest in it. But you actually have to put it at the top of the agenda because there's nothing more important. And I think if I do a great job with people, then actually our customers benefit. So my, I'm a people first strategy generally because that'll allow me to then recruit great people, retain them and give our customers the best experience and, and beat the competition, which I like to do as well. <laughs>
1: Tell me a bit more about this people first strategy that you hold on to, because many people say customer first.
0: Yeah, it came out of a time actually I was living in the US, and I was reading a case study about a large retailer in the US. And they had a customer first strategy, but they were struggling on their customer satisfaction statistics, on their place you know the ranking in the market, their growth. And a new CEO came in and he changed the strategy to a people first strategy. He said, Yes, you know, we've been trying to invest in customer experience and doing all that, but he realized he hadn't been doing it with either an A team or a team he had helped be an A team. So they redid their strategy, Sarah. We are going to make sure we, you know, review the talent, invest in the talent, upskill the talent, create the best employee tools for them to be able to help the customer. And over the next, like, couple of years, that whole business transformed and they became, like, the number one ranking retailer and I still remember reading that case study. I thought, how powerful is that? What do I control? What do I control? I don't control what my competition does. I don't control the exchange rate or the interest rate. I control my P&L and what I can invest in. And if I can invest in great people and give them great tools to do their job, then that will result in great customer outcomes. I mean, it's not perfect. Of course, we get things wrong. Things aren't always as seamless and smooth as we would like. But that sense of you know, really focusing on what we can control and invest in to grow our business. I, I really love thinking about that from the people first side.
1: And there's so many people at the moment who are cutting costs and thinking cutting costs on their people and their development is the way to go.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, at the end of the day, customers are people. People still deal with people. And I also look at my PL. I mean, the reality is you want to run a profitable business. I'm not working for a not for profit. And I think No disrespect to not for profits. I love the work they do, and we we do a lot for not for profits to help them do that. But yeah, we have shareholders. But I think as an organization, it's not just about shareholders, it's stakeholders. And if your only priority is your shareholder, then you'll have one metric probably around that. You'll have a metric that is around profitability and you'll want to drive the cost out. But if you have a mindset of stakeholders, not just shareholders, then you are thinking about what is my employee experience and value proposition? What am I doing to give back to the community in which we serve? Because, you know, that is our customers in that community. Giving back is important. What am I doing to make the planet a better, you know, more sustainable and better place? So I think the years, from my perspective, of leaders and businesses who only had a single optic of shareholders, the only stakeholder, I don't think they're sustainable businesses. And all the research we're doing, especially from this next generation, is they want to deal with companies who do the right thing. They want to deal with companies who give back in the community, who care about the climate and the planet, who make a real difference. So it's not just profit, it's purpose.
1: Pip, do you use coaching as a development tool? I'm curious how you might use it and where have you used it in your career? Uh,
0: Over my career, I've had multiple coaches, which i found incredibly beneficial. And I get coaches for my team. I think it's a really powerful tool. Uh, I think about it in a, in a couple of ways. You know, I've got an amazing team, but often we see and experience things through our own lens, don't we? I and mean, it's just human nature. So if we're in a, you know, a challenging situation and we're debating a strategy, people pretty much come in with the lens that they have informed by their own decisions and beliefs, and that's human. But sometimes we need help seeing things from other perspectives. And I haven't found overly effective going, oh, you see black and I see white, as the best type of conversation, because people tend to hold on to the beliefs. They go, no, no, it's white. And I go, no, no, it's black. And nobody moves anywhere and the and the conflict's unresolved. Working through with a coach around how to tackle complex situations, how to, you know, still bring in my perspective and my conviction, but just as much actively explore and bring out other people's perspective and be open to that, especially when I think it's more of a charged or an emotionally charged sort of area, which, you know, maybe one person really cares about. So I found those have been really, really great coaching experiences. Also, when I think there's been like a transformational moment, like people may have moved, you know, into a manager of manager or a senior role, and they're suddenly, you know, feeling that pressure of coming into that same table they've always sat at, but with a different label attached to them, and how they are thinking about how they want to show up in that new era of their career. And getting somebody to help them work through that from a coaching perspective I think has been a really amazing tool and I think people who are thinking about you know a bit more open-minded too when they're at the point of okay I at a, a fork in the road around what I may do and the choices I make I found re- coaching to be really great in in those experiences.
1: People talk about learning and failing a lot and the concept of being in a psychologically safe environment to maximise the learning from failure. What's your experience of developing others and encouraging failing so we can learn? Yeah, I think
0: that conversation has a lot of traction right now. It's a lot of conversation about, oh, you know, it's safe to fail and failure in service of a purpose of learning. But if culturally those labels don't go with real psychological safety, then it doesn't matter how pretty you make that sound, does it? If At the end of the day, if I expose that I, you know, made this mistake or didn't do this as well and then that impacts, you know, my career or how people perceive me, that's, you know, I think not good. And I, I use the example, when I lived in the U.S., if I was at a coffee shop and somebody was talking about, you know, starting their fifth startup and they're chasing the dream and, you know, the people would be going, wow, five startups, you're amazing, you'd get that. If I was in a coffee shop here, I think for quite some time and I told people I'd had five businesses and none of them had been successful, I'm not sure I would have been celebrated because culturally, you know, I think at times Australia hasn't necessarily embraced that culture of innovation, culture, learning, that hunger that you see in, you know, in areas like, you know, the Bay and, and other parts of the world. And I think it's shifting now in Australia, that sense of innovation. And we've got some incredible companies, Canva you know, Atlassian. They're just great examples. Afterpay that have created new businesses and business models. But they, most of those people, you know, they didn't start without making a mistake. They didn't have this great aspiration and it was just easy on the path to creating this new company. Same for me my career. It wasn't like it was linear and I got here without any problems or any challenges. You know, you've seen me through some of my challenges. But um I think the thing about that is there's one part of it is organisations need to create the organisational and psychological safety. People have to be feel comfortable taking that bet, like I've got to push myself out of that comfort zone. But I think the other part that is not always talked about when we talk about failure is resilience. And I say that because I've seen some people have some failure and they've really struggled afterwards. Like it's knocked them for six.
1: The recovery's hard, Yeah, the right? recovery's mm. hard.
0: And you, I don't think you can stop failure or mistakes. They're just part of life. I think the thing that makes some of the biggest difference is what happens when you fail. And again, if be there psychological safety or not, I still get to control me. I say a storm happens to everybody. The difference is when the storm happens, who gets up fastest, who gets up strongest, who gets up and takes the learning. So when the next storm comes through, you can handle it better. And I think that is the other half of the psychological safety is the individual's ability to recover and get back up and how we help people with those skills
1: amazing i'm curious about the idea of developing others with recognition as well pip and what you think are the recognition styles that motivate people in your view i think
0: everybody wants to be recognized be it a thank you gratitude at times for a job well done even if it's just business as usual every day people want to feel valued for the work they do I think different people see it and want different types of recognition. I know for some people they don't like to be made of a fuss of and called out in all hands and that doesn't motivate them. They would rather have a quiet coffee with you and have you you know, thank them in a really small, intimate way that is really meaningful to them. So I think it's important when you are building out your teams and working with people, you take some time to understand what does motivate people. And personalizing that as as much as possible. But that said, I think when I think about organizational performance, sometimes you have to do things again at scale. So what are the systems and symbols you put in place to reward and recognize the behaviors that you want to see in your organization? So if I think about our company, you know, Salesforce has got four core values that guide us. So trust, equality, innovation, and customer success. And so we put awards around those. We want to show to our organization the benchmark for people who live and breathe their values at a high standard. And so we've just sent this last week, we sent a number of our team and their plus ones to Hamilton as a thank you for work they've done around our values, for living and breathing our values at a high standard. Because it's interesting to say, you know, sometimes people say like, you know, well, of course trust, everybody should be trustworthy lots of different standards you can apply to that so people who are really going above and beyond so I think trying to find ways to also signal to your organization the things you value and having more external rewards and recognition to reinforce that I think is an important part of culture building.
1: Okay developing others takes many tentacles I want to ask now about the high performers so often people will tell me when I'm coaching them the high performers are the most difficult people to actually develop and with your experience I'm curious about what you think
0: mm, that's an interesting one I understand that perspective because I think in some ways first of all I think everybody has potential sometimes I think labels are things that contain us not um, empower us so I think everybody has the potential to be a high performer and to do great work and can contribute and I think you know, sometimes doing things that put people in other boxes can create different issues but there are people at a time where you go, these people are, are, are realizing the ambition of being top of their game. And not everybody is doing that at the same time. I think for people who, who may be constantly in that space of high performance and being seen and told that are often not people who get as much constructive feedback. And sometimes that lack of constructive feedback means when you get it, you don't know how to consume it <laughs> because, you know, they've been told how amazing they are and how great they are. And suddenly you give them some constructive feedback and it has the potential to have them undermine how they feel about themselves, the identity they've built about being a high performer. So I I really believe in even your top performer needs feedback all the time.
1: Okay. Because I was going to ask you about feedback and you've answered Mm -hmm. this question straight away. Feedback needs to come often and regularly. Otherwise, you might believe your own
0: aura. Well, that's the problem. I think it's too easy to go, oh, I don't need to do that one-on-one on that development conversation because that person's doing really well. There's always something we can all improve on, everybody. Now, sometimes with really strong performers, it's harder to find that. Maybe it's not, you know, on the surface. Maybe you have to you know, delve a little deeper or you have to understand their aspiration better and understand the gap to that aspiration and help them identify the development opportunities that can close that gap but everybody can get better and do better. But if you don't do it frequently, then I think it's like a muscle. It just, you know, stops being worked out. And then when you take it back to the gym again, it hurts a bit the first few times. But if you're constantly in a cycle of feedback, I think it makes a difference. One of the things I always do with my team at the end of my one-on-ones with them, just our standard one-on-ones, not our development ones, or those, I always, my last question is, any feedback from me? And I think I don't want to get a surprise three months later about something I did three months ago that you didn't bring up. Tell me now. Let's you know, make sure I understand what's working, what's not, how I can help you better. Uh, when I go on an account call with an AE at the end of the account call, I always say any feedback for me on that customer visit? And normally the first time I'm out with the account executive, they go, oh my God, no, you were great. Thank you so much for coming. And for a moment then I feel really good. That was great. A little, little dopamine hit. But then I say to them, okay, so next time I do an account call with you, you have to tell me one thing I can do better because I want to know what I can do better. And I think especially sometimes when there might be, you know, a hierarchical sort of difference, it's sometimes harder for them to tell you things. But the first time you ask, no. But if you keep asking, then they're prepared. They know Pip's going to ask me that question. So I'm going to be watching and I'm going to be thinking about what I can tell her and – you keep asking and you'll be amazed at the things people tell you and you can learn about how you yourself can do better.
1: Awesome. Are you a fan of radical candour? Are you a fan of, like, throwing that feedback straight in my face or are you a little more nuanced?
0: Mm. Are you Are talking with my husband or at work? I just I'm need talking to... <laughs> about work. Well, <laughs> my husband told me I'm radical candour. <laughs> I, um, I tend to be a little bit more direct. But I, I, typically I'm in public, correct, in private. And I try and make sure that I'm respectful of the person and understand the place they're in. I think, you know, giving somebody some constructive feedback when they're just not in a mindset to take it, it's, it, it doesn't help the other person either. But I do think it's important not to try and sugarcoat things because I think your message can be lost. And if the feedback is given with real genuine care and the, and the intent to support that person, then I think, you know, you should trust your people to be able to handle the truth if you genuinely care about them and, and how you give that feedback. So I tend to be more radical candour, I guess.
1: And you'd rather them hear it from you than from somebody uh, else. So I have a... what you
0: think. Okay, well, one of one of the team behaviours is first person, first time. So as a team, we commit to first party feedback, first time. So if something's happened that, you know, somebody else has. Made an assumption or upset about something, the first person they should talk to is the person who's involved, and not somebody else. So, with my team coming to me, and go, "Oh, so and so did this," and I'm like, "Well, have you told so and so yet?" No, but I wanted to first. Well, our rule is first person, first time.
1: Can you teach teenagers that?
0: <laughs> I have two teenagers, and I can assure you, I cannot teach them right. that. <laughs>
1: Pip, I'm learning a lot, and I'm really interested in this really passionate perspective you have. Before we close up, have you got any last tips, the top tips for leaders listening today on how they develop others?
0: Yeah, I think my first, my biggest one is please don't make assumptions on other people's behalf. and I say that because so many times I speak to leaders and we might be talking about a person for a job and they'll go, oh no, that that person's never told me that, that that's what they want to do. So I don't think so. Everybody has career aspirations they don't always feel as comfortable sharing those. So the more we can take time to, you know, know people and not make assumptions about other people's aspirations and potential, I think is really, really, really important. And I found that more so, especially in my experiences, more often than not, females especially too are less likely to be as open or as direct in their aspirations. And sometimes you have to take time to really pull that out. And I think if we don't do that, we will miss the fabulous diversity that can be you know around the table our customers are diverse our team should be diverse so make sure as leaders we're not making assumptions about other people and, and taking time to to do that and yeah and, and then don't forget to remember that the only thing you have to do to care is actually care
1: amazing Pip Marlowe. thank you so much for joining us on Fast Track today I'm really grateful
0: oh, well thank you for having me I enjoyed it
1: Fast Track was presented by me Margie Hartley producer Tina Matalov Audio production by Darcy Thomson. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.